0: We're going to say it's September 18th, 2016. Our message today is called Game of Thorns, A Theology of Fire. During the worship service today, as the presence of the Lord moved in the room, you could feel Him. And as you could feel Him, some of our hearts began to race. Some of us are excited. Some clap. Some sing that much louder. You feel His enthusiasm. And then the prophecies began to come forward. Some in other tongues, some in English, and the ones with other tongues were interpreted. And they all had to do with holiness. If you want to know the difference between the euphoric feeling at a rock concert and the feeling that you feel in the presence of the Holy Spirit, one will drive you towards holiness and the other will not. We live in a day where there are deceiving spirits even in the church. And you have to learn the difference between that which is driving you towards holiness and that which Paul describes here in First Timothy 4.1. The Spirit clearly says that in the latter times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. And then we go on to describe this kind of heresy in many ways. If you have to use sensuality... To get people to worship Jesus, it is not Jesus that they are worshiping. If you have to change the gospel message into something that eviscerates three quarters of what we know of the character of God and reduces it to a thumbnail kind of theology that simply says God is love, then you may not be worshiping the God that you think that you are. This is a problem. I'm going to take full aim at it in this message. And with any luck, I'll step on every toe in the room. Our heart's desire here is to follow up on messages like grapes of wrath, messages like basic simplification, and nobody is perfect, and make sure that this congregation, I'm preaching to this congregation, those who hear us by internet and however else they do it, we're pleased to have them listen along, but we're pastoring the people who are here today the demoniacs that send me emails and call me all night and all of those things, you get to get blessed by this too. But I'm preaching to the people sitting in this room. I want to make sure that we present to the Lord an offering that is worthy of Him. With that in mind, let us go to the book of Judges and say there when you were there, our message again, Game of Thrones, a theology of fire. Somebody say fire. fire. Fire is a good thing. It just depends on which side of it you are on. In Judges 8, starting in verse 29, Jerubbaal son of Joash, went back home to live. He had 70 sons of his own, for he had many wives. 70 sons is a lot, isn't it? His concubine, who lived in Shechem, also bore him a son, whom he named Abimelech. Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Ophrah of the Abizarites. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up baal Berith. As their God, and did not remember the Lord their God. What did they set up as their God? baal Berith as their God. And did not remember the Lord their God, who had rescued them from the hands of all of their enemies on every side. They also failed to show kindness to the family of Jerub-baal, is Gideon, for all the good things that he had done for them. In these first few verses, let's take a couple names that appear. The first is Abimelech. Can most of you read that? Abimelech is a Hebrew word. In the first few letters, Ab, or father. The next letters, Melech, our king. He's claiming, by virtue of his name, to be the father king. In other words, the one who's above other kings. This place where they have set up in the uh, replacement of Yahweh God, they have, they have put uh, Baal Berith as the place that is their God. These are also biblical words that most of you are familiar with. Baal is a generic term for God, usually speaking of a false God. And Barith... Is the hebrew word for covenant it's usually said a little different than that bris or brit but this is our english translation of it so false god covenant these are the things that are at play at the very beginning of this story we have abimelech a father king and we have baobarith a false god covenant as their God. In other words, something about their understanding of Baal Berith became a God to them. I'm going to make the assertion today that this represents false theology. Let us pick up in Judges 9, starting in verse 1. Abimelech, son of Jeroboam, went to his mother's brothers in Shechem and said to them and to all his mother's clan, Ask all the citizens of Shechem. Which is better for you, to have all 70 of Jeroboam's sons rule over you, or just one man? Remember, I am your flesh and blood. What an interesting appeal. We're in a strange political season right now, and uh, like all politicians, this one appeals to people and says, hey, I look like you. He appeals to people and says, I'm from your area. We have the same relatives. This is the reason that you should choose me. Not any one of the natural sons, nobody who stands for righteousness. Simply asking on the basis of your sympathy for him to choose him. Okay? Uh, The rulership would be based on what the people thought they could get from the leader, not the people serving their God. And this is the basis for his power. We have two politicians appealing for the very same thing right now. We have a choice between the lesser of two evils. Neither are righteous. I'm not here to argue about any of those things. Neither one of those men represent God. Or <laughs> Neither one of those people. These days there's something called gender fluidity. I'm not sure I know what that is, but um, one of the candidates talks about it some. In the third verse, we introduce something else. By the time you get to the third verse, it says, when the brothers repeated all of this to the citizens of Shechem. <laughs> citizens of Shechem is an interesting thing. There is a famous archaeologist, uh, a man named W.F. Albright, who is one of the finest biblical scholars uh, of the early 1900s. And... Um, He said that in this area they referred to themselves, the citizens of Shechem, were referred to by the Hebrews as Bene Hamor. That's a really interesting word. Bene means sons. Hamor is going to make you blush. It means a he-ass, just like a donkey. They referred to themselves as sons of Hamor. Do you remember that there was a compromise at Shechem? And the uh, people of God went into Shechem to consider intermarriage. They proposed a treaty. There was a rape and then murders after that. These are the descendants of Hamor, whose name the Hebrews call an ass. So try to wrap your mind around this. We have a father king who wants to rule over the sons of an ass, And the place that they worship is a false god covenant. It's starting to get serious in here. The whole choice is bad. There's nothing in the choice that is good. It's like going to a voting ballot and wanting to vote none of the above. And the reason that you want to vote none of the above is because you want the king of righteousness to be your king. That's not an option at this place in Judges. This book is a difficult book, and one of the reasons that it is is because you're looking for who is right in the story and who is wrong in the story. You read a chapter like Judges 19, and you find out there's nobody who did anything that was right. This is what happens when men do what is right in their own eyes. We produce an environment exactly like what we have now, where Bnei Hamor is the populace that we're talking about. Now, when it says citizens of Shechem, they were inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he is our brother. They gave him 70 shekels of silver for the temple of baal Berith, And Abimelech used it to hire reckless adventurers who became his followers. So how did Abimelech rise to power? He rises to power by appealing to the most base elements in his relatives, and then after appealing to the most base elements in his relatives, he finances it right out of the temple of the false god covenant. Can we say the whole thing's dirty? There's nothing in it that's good? Watch where this goes. He went to his father's home in Ophrah, and on one stone, murdered his seventy brothers, the sons of Jerubbaal. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbaal, escaped by hiding. Then all the citizens of Shechem and Beth Millo gathered beside the great tree at the pillar of Shechem to crown Abimelech king. So this son of a slave—he he is the, the son of a non-legitimate wife that the Bible calls a concubine the son of a slave goes and begins systematically murdering his 70 half-brothers. He gets through 69 of them and doesn't reach the 70th because there was a remnant hiding. One in 70. When you think on this for a second, this speaks of a hatred that those who are under a false God covenant, those who think, that their father king is above all because he does for them what they want done. He's ruling over a kingdom of donkeys. They hate the natural heirs. They hate them. Have you noticed that it's not enough for you to sit and simply mind your own business, uh, read your Bible in a public place? Someone who is wicked will hate that you are reading a Bible there. Uh, you don't have to say anything to them. You don't have to do anything. They will hate you immediately because you're a son of God. Jotham is another biblical name. In the Bible language, there are no Js. So I'm going to write it more similarly to the way that it is in the Bible. Jotham. Jotham means Yahweh, I'm going to abbreviate it, is Perfect. We have a choice between the father king who came to power based on a false God covenant who wants to rule over the he asses and Yahweh who is perfect. Now we had a message here preached by Pastor Sutherland. He's doing a fantastic job, don't you think? How many of you have enjoyed the message? He is tearing down, burning down a false theology of our time. And I love the tenacity with which he's going after it. He preached a message based on the heretical statement that nobody is perfect. Church, who is perfect? Jesus is perfect, absolutely perfect. Based uh, this this idea that you shouldn't even try because nobody is. And I have heard more times than I can count in the last two weeks that sin is inevitable. If you believe that any specific sin in your life is inevitable, you have already lost. Because you've already conceded to it in advance. I do not believe there is any specific sin in my life that is inevitable. The fact that I will make a mistake at some point and that will be sin, that, that, that I, I will grant you. But when you say it is inevitable that such and such will happen, You have given yourself over to it, and it is your slave master. I don't have to lay out the theology for that because pastor did it and did a great job. But in this setting, we have a false king who has risen. We have people with base desires that are following him. We have a false God covenant that is their theology. And we have only one man whose name means Yahweh is perfect, who is the only survivor of the last legitimate ruler. Are you following me so far? Yes. Now, this gets to be a lot of fun. And uh, starting in verse 7, when Jotham was told about this, he climbed up on top of Mount Gerizim and shouted to them. How many of you remember that there were two mountains in Israel, one that blessings were shouted from and another that curses were shouted from? In Deuteronomy, the 27th chapter and 12th verse, it is Mount Gerizim that the blessings were shouted from. Jotham, whose name means Yahweh is perfect, he's standing for the righteousness of Yahweh, not Baal-barith, the false god covenant. He is standing on top of Mount Gerizim, appealing to the people based on the blessing of the law. He is telling them the truth about what God's word says So that he might turn them. Do you think they're going to love him or hate him for that? Do you think people are going to love you or hate you when you tell them the truth? I want to clue you into something that is just a pastoral note. If the whole Christian world is chasing after it, how many of you actually believe that the whole Christian world is actually Christian? How many people do you know that are Christian in name only? I would say most that I know are Christian in name only. When it comes to actual hurting for the gospel, actual proof of repentance in their life, there's very, very little. It is a remnant inside the Christian world that is actually born again. So when you find something that appeals to everyone, you might be very careful about going after it. I am deeply, deeply disturbed by the level of sensuality, uh, person worship, uh. Uh, Exulting music over worship that we see commonly accepted in the Christian scene today. And I, I cannot watch the Christian worship videos to save my life. I think the rock videos that we used to watch were more honest. They at least told you what they were doing. Um, and if, if a man to sell a CD needs to appeal to 13-year-old girls, if that's the target audience, and is doing it, Uh, according to a worldly campaign, how can that be worship of Jesus Christ? Now, I'll let you wrestle with what those things are. And if lyrics bless you, then praise God. But I don't want to be associated with anyone that is not holy. And the Holy Spirit, first and foremost, inspires holiness, which is why his name is what it is. So Jotham, who's standing on top of Mount Gerizim, says this. He shouts it. Listen to me, (laughs) citizens of Shechem, so that God may listen to you. Did you hear that? When you disobey God, God might ignore your prayer. When you have disregard for his word, he might not be listening to you. One day the trees went out to anoint a king for themselves. Have you read in the New Testament where the blind man who's healed said, I see men walking as trees throughout the Bible, a hermeneutic about trees as they represent men. Then he said to the, I'm sorry uh, for themselves. They said to the olive tree, be our king. But the olive tree answered, should I give up my oil by which both gods and men are honored to hold sway over the trees? Next, the trees said to the fig tree, come be our king. But the fig, the fig tree replied, should I give up my fruit so good and sweet to hold sway over the trees? Then the tree said to the vine, come and be our king. Let's take those three trees for a minute. We We started with an olive tree. Then we moved to a fig tree. Then we moved to a vine before we get to the fourth tree. When you see that, keep in mind that nothing in the Bible stands by itself. Every word is connected to the words before it and the words after it. The idea that we have an older and a newer testament has caused a disconnect for people that is unhealthy. The book of Genesis is inspired. The book of Revelation is inspired. When God says something 2,000 years before the cross, it's inspired when he says it during the century of the cross It is inspired. God is never wrong. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't box himself into some theologian's systematic interpretation that didn't come about till the 1830s. God is not hindered by men's thoughts about him. And when you see an olive tree, throughout the Bible in places like Jeremiah 11 uh, and Romans 11, it's pretty easy to derive that the olive tree has to do With spiritual Israel. This is the tree that you're grafted into to be saved. This is that anointed tree of God that is supposed to obey him and be a blessing and a light for the nations. When you see the fig tree in places like Jeremiah 24, there was a basket of good figs and a basket of rotten figs. In Matthew 21, we see a fig tree cursed And in Luke 13, you see a fig tree that is spared while you dig around the roots for a whole year. And the hope is that the fig tree will respond with bearing good fruit. The fig tree tends to represent religious Israel in the Bible. And sometimes that's a bad thing, depending on how they're doing. Other times it's a a good thing. When Adam and Eve covered themselves with fig leaves, that was not a good thing, Uh, If the fruit was ripe in Jeremiah 24, it was a good thing. The vine, the vine tends to represent natural Israel, the descendants of Israel like a spreading vine that moved out all across the earth. You can read about that in Isaiah 5, but you can also read the parable of the vineyard in Matthew 20. You could even read John 15 where Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. It is a Jewish king speaking to Jewish subjects about how being connected to him will produce the fruit of the kingdom. In the olive tree, you see anointed Israel. In the fig tree, what you see is a religious Israel. And in the vine, what you see is natural Israel. And none of those trees would rule over the people. We end up in verse... Fourteen. Finally, all of the trees said to the thorn bush, come be our king. How sad that God put an olive tree, a fig tree, a vine tree. I mean, by the way, Jesus is anointed. Jesus is the perfect representation of the religion of Israel. And Jesus is a natural descendant of Israel israel he's all of these things but that is not what the people wanted what they wanted was a thorn bush what's the first thing that you think of when you think of the word thorn thorn bush shows up as soon as there is sin it's the first product of a ground that is cursed by sin now some of you may be reading a translation that says bramble This is not the word thorn. This is the word thorn bush. It is a useless tree that does not produce any good fruit. Verse 15. Verse 15 begins to bring this home in a unique way. The thorn bush said to the trees, If you really want to anoint me king over you. Did you know that a man can be a thorn bush and still be anointed? How do people, according to Paul, practice miracles that would deceive even the elect if that were possible? It is possible to be in sin and be anointed. You know, the easy way out is to say that, brother, that for 10 years set the world on fire for Jesus and millions of people were saved and all of those things, and then he has an affair with his secretary and then the one after that and the one after that and the one after oh, he never was saved. That's not a biblical teaching. He's he, he's not what you are. He's disgraced himself. Uh, he may not even be a son anymore. But to say that he never was born again is to deny the work that God did in him. This thorn bush is anointed as king over you. Come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, then let fire come out from the thorn bush and consume the cedars of Lebanon. What an interesting thing. This reminds me so much of the wickedness that we see. I see it in the church. From time to time, see it in this church. See it in the churches that we visit. I see it all of the time in the churches that are the most popular in the, in the world today. It, it basically goes like this. You should be with me, doing what I'm doing, approving of what I'm approving of. If you're not... If you stand separately, then I'm against you. See, a godly man who is full of godly convictions is not threatened if you have a different conviction. That doesn't bother him at all. What is it, for instance, about the homosexual agenda that is not content to say, let's just not talk about this? Why is it necessary for you to approve of what they do? Because when sin is your master, you say, join in with me or I'll burn you. Anyone who is not joining in with me makes me feel conviction, and I don't like that. So a murderous spirit comes. Well, it's no different when people are are slaves to sin in the church. The first thing they do is start to talk about how God is love, and they know that they're already forgiven even though... They are not producing any fruit of repentance and it is repetitive in their life and then they turn and burn your life down. This is a pattern that is as predictable as watching a thorn bush grow. You don't expect to find a fig on a thorn bush because it's a thorn bush. But if you plant good seed and it's watered from the heavens, you would expect to grow good things. Unless, of course, the soil was contaminated with other things. On this topic, let's put Matthew 3.12 on the screen. I want to show you that this is an antichrist spirit. This is uh, speaking of Jesus. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. In Matthew 3.12, what we are seeing is that there is an instrument of separation in the hand of Jesus, and that he will burn with unquenchable fire whatever is called chaff. That's a non-producing part of the plant. That is a waste product of the plant. But what is wheat, he brings into the barn. Now, I recognize that very often Christian vernacular is, I want to be baptized with the Holy Ghost and with fire. That's a misapplication of this verse. It It is, is not correctly understanding it. Now, you may well be baptized in fire, but I hope it's not the fire that this is speaking of. This is a fire of judgment. Did you hear what the thorn bush said, though? You come into my shade, or fire will come out from me and consume you. This is a pseudo-Christ. It is speaking words like Christ, but it is not Christ. You are not uniting with this one king instead of 70 over righteousness. You are uniting with that one king because he's like you and you get to do the things you already wanted to do. It is, and when you hear the word Antichrist, you think anti means against, and it, it, it does. But the Greek word uh, is pseudo, it, it means another in the place of. Okay, it it can mean anti, but it also means another in the place of. This king, Abimelech, is a king in the place of the king that they should have. And he is bringing people to unity just like the true king should. And he's rallying them just like the true king should, but it's based on their sinful desires rather than the holiness of God. Are you tracking with me so far? So the thorn bush is an example then. You can read further about that in Jeremiah let 's put Jeremiah 157. I don 't want you to think that any New Testament thought is a New Testament thought alone. Where do you think Matthew, or, or John the Baptist Matthew recording his words, got the idea? Well, number one, he saw it in the Spirit. And number two, Jesus Christ is the Word of God. And the Word of God said, I will winnow them with a winnowing fork at the city gates of the land. I will bring bereavement and destruction on my people, for they have not changed their ways. If you believe that you can be in Christ and not change your ways, you are greatly deceived. You might be at Baal Barith. You might have a false Covenant that has become your God, a false understanding that has become your God. A man sat right here some six months ago, looked at me and said, Well, Pastor, the truth is anyone who just acknowledges that Jesus is Lord and understands that he was raised from the dead after three days, they're saved. That's all you have to do. I thought, How did you sit and listen to that last hour and a half message and walk away with that conclusion? It's because you hear what you want to hear because of your wicked and twisted heart. The demons know that Jesus Christ is Lord. The demons know that He was raised after the three days. They know these things to be true. They don't live as if He is Lord. His resurrection has done nothing for them except condemn them. The idea that simply possessing knowledge about these things does anything for you in itself is a deceiving doctrine. Um, Speaking about the thornbush, when we consider this, let's turn to 2 Peter. And I'm going to come back uh, to this passage, so you might leave uh, a marker there. In 2 Peter, let's pick up in the second chapter. We're going to come back to each of those topics here in just a second. I just want to talk to you about the way Peter says this, because I am at war in these last months. I mean, I've been at war for years, but the battle is really, really intensified here lately. I want to win. I'm tired of watching brothers stumble and fall and then comfort themselves with false doctrines that we do not teach, have never ascribed to, but are so prevalent around us that it just kind of, you know, it feels right. Well, your feelings are not the judge. Listen to what Second Peter The second chapter says, I I was lectured yesterday for three hours on the forgiveness of God by a man that I don't think is in covenant with God. And and he's sweet. I hope for good things for him. He's actually had terrible, terrible abuses of sin affect his life. And my heart grieves for him because of that. Because of it, though, he's lashing out against the righteous standard that exposes sin. And that's just... It's painful. It's painful because I I recognize that he has no idea what's happening to him. Sin hurts. It's yucky. It ruins lives everywhere. I've been telling the pastors if I could bottle what we've been going through, and the next time somebody's head can't quit watching the woman jog by, I just grab their mouth and shove some of that bottle in their mouth. So this this is what you're headed to, son. This is it right here. I think we would never have sin problems in the church having said that we don't need to bottle that feeling the word of god tells us in advance what will happen when we sin that's why he hates sin it's why you should hate sin did you find out from pastor sutherland that god hates wicked things did you find that out did all of you find that out okay so in second peter 2 let us begin then in verse 17 These men—we're speaking of men who are ruled by the thornbush mentality. These men are springs without water. What do you expect to get from water uh, from a spring? Mist driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. The idea is that they don't produce what they should produce. For they mouth empty boastful words. And by appealing to the lustful desires of the sinful human nature, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. People who are escaping from those who live in error are those that are coming to the Lord. We're we're talking new Christians here. And there's somebody that is a threat to the new Christians. Somebody who is a cloud without rain. He, He looks like he should produce water, but there's no water in there. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. If you are mastered by a sin, then you are a slave to that sin. How can you be a slave to sin and a slave to righteousness at the same time? That is like trying to say you're an honest thief, a pure harlot. These things don't... A married bachelor. These things don't work. They don't go together. For a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome. There's all kind of false theology that teaches that's not even possible. They are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Could it get any clearer? If we know the righteousness of God, if we have been set free from this world and we are again entangled, break it, break it quickly, confess it quickly, get out of it quickly, because if you're entangled long enough and overcome You're in a worse situation than a man who is simply never born again. In fact, of them, the proverbs are true. A dog returns to its own vomit, a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. The danger of letting the thorn bush rule over you (laughs) I told you it's a pseudo Christ. The irony here is that they will take refuge in the thorn bush, they'll participate in its sin and they will be consumed by fire. What the thornbush promised is come to me and join in my sin, or you will be burned by fire. But sin is a lie. It's a deceit. You go and enjoy it, and you will be burned by fire. It's not or. It's and. But when when John the Baptist is speaking about Jesus, you have a clear choice. It's either or. Or you can have the judgment of God or the blessing of God. But what sin does is it makes you think that you can live in sin and the blessing of God. It will not work. Are we clear? Somebody in this house say amen. Amen. I I want a better amen than that. Let's go back to Judges. And I'm hoping this becomes as revelatory to you as it has to us this story resolves itself in an interesting way. My personal opinion is that we don't tend to have idols that are called Baal-barith. That would be too honest. We have theology as an idol. Things that are nowhere proven in the Word of God, most of the time in the 15th century, 16th century, 18th, 19th century, in other words, 1,500 years after Christ, These things were derived, and now men are a slave to their doctrine. And despite all evidence to the contrary, they believe themselves to be blessed by God while they continue to go their own way. And they need to be frightened by that kind of hypocrisy. Okay, in Judges 9, picking back up and say verse 20. This is Jotham's prophecy. It's kind of the height of the prophecy off of Mount Gerizim. But if you have not, let fire come out from Abimelech and consume you citizens of Shechem and Beth-Melo. And let fire come out from you citizens of Shechem and Beth-Melo and consume Abimelech. When, When Jotham hears what's going on, he says, hey, you know what this is like? This is like you've rejected natural Israel you've rejected spiritual Israel, you've rejected anointed Israel, and you've said, I want sin to be my master. And what sin is saying to you is, come join in with me or I'll burn you. But what I'm prophesying to you is, all of you that choose sin, you will be burned and so will those who lead you into sin. That's why we call this a theology of fire. How many of you would like to warn people? that their life is going to burn them alive. Have you ever seen somebody go through a divorce? My God, it is it terrible. I mean, I when we went into ministry all of us, we wanted to share with people the good things. That Jesus has done for us. We wanted them to know that euphoric, beautiful feeling of being right with God. We wanted them to lie down and sleep and at peace at night. To want to motivate uh, people to follow the Lord and advance the kingdom on earth. We wanted to go to the ends of the earth and talk about the goodness of God. But what sin makes you do is deal with the burning houses all around you. It makes you deal with the fallout of other people's actions. You have no idea how selfish sin is. There's nobody ever that has sinned, and it only affected just them. Even when you think you're alone, it always, always affects down to the third and fourth generation. It always does. Church, You're hearing me plead with you. Don't choose a thorn bush for your master. You may never escape it. Every addict says, I can quit anytime I want to. Every addict does. But they don't. They go from bad to worse until their lives are burned up. And the person who is sitting here in sin and knows they're going to sin next week and thinks they're forgiven, you have a spiritual disease. You're lost and you're sitting in the house of God. In the 20th verse, we hear a prophecy about fire. By the 22nd and 23rd verse, God himself sends an evil spirit. <laughs> that's, that's not in most people's theology. God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem. Somehow or another, the sons of the uh, he asks, And their father, king, leader can't get along. Somehow or another, that kingdom is not based on righteousness and peace. It's based on who is stronger, who's more influential. It's based on who's talking about whom and how you can unseat those in authority. So God sent a spirit that caused a separation between the people. You know what's interesting? You think that's an Older Testament thought? Second Thessalonians 2.11 promises that God will send a delusion so that those who are perishing because they do not love the truth will continue to perish. There's no difference between the Older and the Newer Testament in that regard. The product of sin is pain and division. In Abimelech's leadership, only three years in, the people are at odds with him and he's at odds with them. So they do something. Down in verse 28, they choose a leader named Gaal. Ga'el means contempt, loathing. They chose a leader as bad as the first one for all the same reasons that they chose the first one. It's in this verse, the 28th verse, that the writer makes the connection back to Hamor, which is a Hebrew word again that means ass. And that's intentional. A dumb animal. That's whom he's leading He is leading people that are acting like donkeys. Do you know that when we follow the base nature of the sinful nature, you're acting like plain animals? We are sons of God, filled with the Spirit of God. If the Spirit of God in you is not enough to overcome the sinful nature, then the Bible's a lie. But it is. You just have to submit to the Spirit of God. He is beautiful. He is wonderful. But above all else, he's holy. Look at verse 46. Gael fails. He fails the test. He, he can't unseat Abimelech uh, like most sinners. He promised to do more than he could accomplish. That never happens in the political season. He's like, hey, you give me the authority And I will unseat Abimelech and, you know, vote for Pedro. All your dreams will come true. Of course, when he goes out to the battlefield, he gets whipped. He gets whipped terribly. And in verse 46, the people then who have now turned on Abimelech, they have to figure out what they're going to do. On hearing this, the citizens in the Tower of Shechem went into the stronghold of the temple of El Barith. That is Baal uh, Barith. It's another way to say it. It's another word for God covenant. When they were in trouble and it didn't go well, they ran right back to their God of false theology. And it says things like, God knows my heart. He's loving and He knows my heart. He knows your heart by your actions. You have shown Him your heart by what you do. It is a false theology. And they run into this temple. And do you know what happens to it? In verse 49, it's set on fire. Just as Jotham said that it would be. Yahweh's righteousness says, if you continue to live in sin, you are going to be burned. It doesn't matter what your theology is. You cannot be in Christ and be mastered by sin. You cannot do it. This, if, if there was ever a story in the Bible that represented our time, I don't know what could do so more than this. Do you know how Abimelech finally dies? He goes to burn down yet another town because that's what sin does. It destroys one life and then goes right on to destroy the next. That's what sin does. When Cain leaves the presence of God, he goes out to a land called Nod that means wandering and he builds cities of people just like him. Sin always looks for more sinners. I can watch in a congregation and find the weakest people sitting next to each other because they love it. Whoever has a perverse Or wrong attitude finds the one other person among you that has a perverse and wrong attitude and they become friends immediately like Herod and Pilate who had never been friends until they both agreed that Jesus should die and then they were best of friends. Wickedness always just moves on to the next life, always trying to build a coalition against God. It is an antichrist spirit. Do you know how the man dies? A woman drops a millstone on his head and kills him. Do you think maybe when Jesus warns us in Matthew 18, 6, that if you lead a child astray, it would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and you thrown into the ocean? Guys, it is important that we get this right. Not crossing your T's and dotting your I's of your theological statement. I'm talking about the practice of theology in your life. I'm talking about one that says God is holy. He is true. Every man is a liar, but he is not. I'm talking about one that doesn't make him guilty to make you innocent talking about standing rightly before a holy God and doing so with confidence, not because you claimed the blood of Jesus Christ and say you're under the grace, but because the blood of Jesus Christ atoned for you and His grace taught you to say no to sin. The proof in your life, do you know Acts 26 says you must have deeds that show repentance? It's Paul recounting the gospel. I taught them to turn from darkness to light and prove it by their deeds. It's Acts 26, right around the 20th verse. You're scholars, you can find it. It's in the word, and it's not in messages anywhere anymore. What brought me to all of this is that I want to win. Have you heard me say that lately? I'm 41 years old. I'm a grandfather. Today is the 21st day of Titus' life. I care very much about the world that he will inherit. I believe that it's our job to raise the generations in a reverential fear of the Lord that keeps them from wickedness. And wickedness is increasing in the church. We've lost the ability to discern anymore. When a man says... Listen, I'm just—I'm gonna get this out there for just a second, and it probably make—I don't care. There was a man in Lakeland, Florida, in an ongoing affair, talking to female angels and manifesting things that more resemble what we see in India than what should go on in a church. It was one of the largest revivals our nation has ever seen. They say, the magazines all praised it the leaders of our time stood on a stage while the man was in adultery and they didn't know it, and they prophesied to him about how his influence would increase, his power would increase, his fame would increase. And I'm thinking to myself, those are not things that would be good for anyone. And the most respected charismatic and Pentecostal leaders of our time Stand there and say those things. And two days later, he's exposed as a man who was having an affair. He leaves his wife, marries her, and is still preaching on the TV today. You don't think we have a problem with discernment? If, if the great leaders can stand next to somebody in active adultery and proclaim God's favor upon him and that he's the answer to the church world uh, at large, don't you think we have a problem? I don't want that to exist here. And when I turn on uh, um, Christian radio, I'm just going to tell you about half the time I'm sick. The things they're singing of, there is no striving. Are you kidding me? We fight the good fight. We strategize the good strategy. We agonize the good agony. What do you mean there's no striving? It's something is bad wrong. And it's because we've departed from the word and we've chosen a thorn bush for our kings We want a setting that does not make anyone feel the conviction of the Holy Ghost. I want the opposite. I want to swim in the conviction of the Holy Ghost. I want to repent daily, regularly. I want constantly to have His affirmation that I have turned from what is wicked and I'm standing in a right place. And the truth is, I need that. Could I turn with you to really the meat of the message? Would that be okay? It's all right that I'm being honest with you? I'm being candid with you? I love when somebody tells me they appreciate me being candid. Like, I don't care whether you appreciate it or not. It's what I am. (laughs) What did you expect? You know? We can argue about whether or not you think I'm a good man. There should be nobody in this room that argues with me about whether or not I've been honest with you. In Numbers 33, the Israelites have gotten right to the boundary of, uh, of Israel. They're, they've marched out of Egypt. They've, they uh, are, are now right at the Jordan. They're right at the precipice of what one time would be their greatest victory and another time would be their most demoralizing failure. Isn't that very similar to, to every Christian's life? Every opportunity that you're at every boundary you have to cross, every time you have to leave a job in faith, every time you have to sell something and give it away in faith, every time you have to tell a relative that you love, I'm sorry, you and I have a different spirit, and you can come to me, but I will not go to do what you're doing, and they hate you for it. Every time we come to those kind of real-life boundaries, and people begin to quote their It's not really a game of thorns to them. It's more of a theology that would be fit for the nastiness of the Game of Thrones. Uh, Apparently one of the more popular television programs there is. Never seen it. Never going to see it. Never even seen the cover page of an advertisement for it. Because I don't love the world. I don't want anything in it. But people quote back to you as soon as they feel conviction. The security of their false doctrine. And it always goes something like this. Nobody's perfect. The Lord knows my heart. Look, man, I'm not perfect. I'm just forgiven. I challenge you to go listen to the last few messages that have been preached from this pulpit. Last five or six. If you still believe that, you, you have deep moral problems. That is not true. That is not the attitude of a Christian. And just because it's popular in our time, you need to know historically, that was never the gospel that was preached. Never. You can't find it in the Word. You can't find it anywhere. In Numbers 33, they found themselves in a situation where they were going to have to step up and be the people God called them to. And that's the situation that we find ourselves in today. Uh, Gabriel, erase this board. And let's start in verse 50. On the plains of Moab, son, there's a a rag. Yeah. Verse 50. On the plains of Moab, by the Jordan, across from Jericho, the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into Canaan, drive out all the inhabitants of the land before you. What are they supposed to do? Drive out out all. Drive out some? Drive Drive out a few? Drive out the vast majority. Drive out all of the inhabitants of the land before you. Destroy all the carved images. How many carved images? How many of you have images that you shouldn't have? Do you see something that now you can't get out of your mind? Is there something haunting you from years of perversity that is still swimming between your ears? He said, drive out all their carved images and their cast idols. Demolish how many of their high places? Demolish how many? Did Pastor Hutchinson stand at this pulpit and say, all means all? Does it still mean all? Take possession of the land and settle in it. What are you supposed to do with the land? For I have given you the land to possess it. Distribute the land by lot according to your clans. To a larger group, give a larger inheritance. And to a smaller group, a smaller one. Whatever falls to them by lot will be theirs. Distribute it according to your ancestral tribes. How many of you see verse 55? How many of you see verse 55? What's the first word of it? God told them what to do. And then there's a conjunction there. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land, those you allow to remain will become barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides. They will give you trouble in the land where you will live. And then, and then, I will do to you what I plan to do to them. Let's take this for just a second. We're given four commands In the first few verses. The first one is drive out all. The second one. We have destroy all their images. The third one. Demolish. All of their high places. The fourth one, take possession. Are we all clear that it says that? Do you think God was serious when he said drive out all? Was God serious when he said destroy all? Was he serious when he said demolish all? Was he serious when he said, take possession? He gives four things that happen when you don't. You ready? So the next thing that happens here is he says, if you don't drive out all, it will be barbs in your eyes. How many of you would like a barb in your eye? Is that a pretty thing? If you do not drive out the sin that is among us, if you, if you won't get rid of it, then that sin begins to blind you. When you won't drive sin from among you, Hebrews says, their hearts were hardened by sin's deceitfulness. When you harbor sin, it does something to you. The Psalms and the book of Matthew teach us very clearly Psalm 135, if you hang on to an idol, you become as deaf and as mute as that idol. What happens here is when you fail to drive out sin, it becomes a barb in your eye you no longer can see rightly. Do you want to know why so many have such bad discernment? Because they're guilty of the same things that they're supposed to be discerning. Secondly, if you don't destroy all their images then they become thorns in your side. Thorns in your side. This means that a man who is trying to do something that is right, but he keeps revisiting vile images every time he goes to do something right, do you know what is stuck right in his side? That vile image that is a thorn. Where was a wife supposed to be taken from? A man's side, the easer, the other half of you. And what do you replace it with when you look at nastiness? A thorn. Instead of a hindrance, you have a snare. Instead of something that was meant to propel you into the presence of God, you have something that is harming you, so you can't go into the presence of God. He said this in Numbers 33. That's before there's an internet. When I hear that seven out of every ten Christians... Or surfing porn, that tells me that seven out of every ten people who say they're a Christian cannot be in Christ. Oh no, pastor, it's inevitable. You just, you're just being intolerant. If it's inevitable, then Jesus died for nothing. It is not inevitable. There are men of God standing in this room that will not do those things. When you don't demolish all of the high places, then you have trouble in the land. The fourth one. When you do not take possession of the land, when you fail to take ownership of the salvation that God has given you, when you fail to walk in it, when you fail to carry it out, when you fail to do those things, God says He will do to you what he told you to do to them that ought to be a frightening verse the more you sin the more you lose your eyesight the more you sin the more you lose that sense of completeness where God, and hopefully if you have one, a spouse is your easer beside you in covenant helping you. The more you sin, the more your life becomes troubled. How can you be rescuing people from the clutches of hell when that's you? If you live in it long enough, failing to take hold of what God has said for you to take hold, He will do to you what you should have done to them. Now, you won't hear that at a popular conference today. But the law of God in the book of Numbers says it plain as day. How many sermons have you heard on this in your life? Do you know where I heard this first? From one of our disciples who is studying holiness. He said, in looking at thorns, I can't believe what's there. I have to share it with you as I've been meditating on it, he couldn't be more right. Let's continue our thoughts about thorns. I just showed you from the law. Let's read Jeremiah 4 and start in verse 1. Say there when you were there. This year for Resurrection Sunday. This year, in the services that people call Easter, which is in and of itself offensive, but whatever, they will drop eggs from helicopters. This year, in the springtime, for the same reason, there will be people that will give away plasma televisions to get your attention, give away gift certificates to try to get the lost to come in their church. I even saw pictures last year of an actual church setting, at least that's what they say it is, with a high wire strung above the congregation as an attraction to the message so that people would come in on their quote-unquote Easter service. Because the resurrection of the dead is just not enough, right? When you have to use these kind of debase things, are you not a Bimelech? Are you not just a king ruling over the son of asses? Sons of God do not have to be motivated in this way. Sons of God love Him and want to be like Him. Did you hear that? They want to be like Him. With all of their heart, that's their motivation. You don't need Jesus to dress up in circus du Soleil tights. You love Him and want to be like Him. Him. That is your motivator. In Jeremiah 4, starting in verse 1, If you will return, O Israel, return to Me. If you put your detestable idols out of My sight and no longer go astray, and if in truthful, in a truthful, just, and righteous way, you swear as surely as Yahweh lives, then the nations will be blessed by Him, and in Him they will glory. This is what the Lord says to the men of Judah and to Jerusalem. Break up your unplowed ground. Say that with me. Break up your unplowed ground. How hard do our hearts have to be before we are pierced by the Word of God? Has Baal Berith so encompassed us that we cannot see the fallacy of these teachings? Break up your unplowed ground and do not sow among... Don't sow into sin. Don't do it. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts, you men of Judah and you people of Jerusalem, or my wrath will break out and burn like fire because of the evil you have done. Burn with no one to quench it. You might need to revisit the message, Grapes of Wrath. You might need to hear Pastor Sutherland speak on basic simplification. You might have to go back through that message, Nobody's Perfect, because you haven't heard it thousands of times, but you have heard this grace lie that says grace is a license for immorality. And no matter what you do and continue to do, you're already forgiven. It is a lie, and it's sending people to hell. You might need to circumcise your heart. Jeremiah begs with the people not to sow among sin, to circumcise their hearts or there would be fire from God. How about the writings? Put Proverbs 15, 19 on the screen. In Proverbs 15, 19. The way of the sluggard. The way of who? The way of who? Anybody in here want to be a Sluggard. The way of the sluggard is blocked with thorns, but the path of the upright is a highway. There is a highway called righteousness, but do you know where sluggards dwell? They dwell in a path blocked with thorns. Do you know why? They were too lazy to uproot the sin from their lives. Spiritual apathy came upon them, and they did not deal with sin. They just said it's covered under the grace. Grace does not cover your willing, intentional sin. Read the book of Hebrews. It doesn't. Grace is there to teach you to say no to ungodliness, to give you the chance to repent. A sluggard, not a son, a sluggard's way is blocked with thorns. Keep turning to the right in the book of Proverbs and look at Proverbs 24. In Proverbs 24, pick up in verse 30. I went past the field of a... I went past the field of a... I went past the field of a sluggard, past the vineyard of a man who lacks judgment. Thorns had come up everywhere. The ground was covered with weeds and the stone wall was in ruins. He goes on to say poverty came on him. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands. A day where you decide, I don't want to war against sin. A day where you got, you know, I mean, it's all covered under the grace, isn't it? And what happens is you become a spiritually poor man. Maybe like the church of Laodicea while you're saying you're rich and well clothed. Maybe while you're bragging about all the ways in which you're in Christ. Maybe he actually sees you as poor. You wonder why the actually poor are rich in faith? They don't have time to sin. They're too busy working and asking God to provide for them. They're too busy hungering. Affluence breeds sin. There's, every time a, a, a nation grows in its um, a wealth and influence, like our nation has, what goes right hand in hand with it is immorality because our teenagers don't have to work anymore. They don't even want to go out and get married anymore. They don't want to buy houses anymore. They, the car industry suffers. They don't want to buy cars. They want to sit at home and play video games and watch porn. You have to be wealthy enough to support people for generations like this. You have to have half of a country receiving something from a government to have the kind of immorality that produces thousands and thousands and thousands of murders in a year in one city. Thorns are the result of not dealing with sin correctly. Do you see that? Thorns are the product of sin. And if a thorn bush rules over you, it will burn your house down. Let's go to Hebrews 6. Hebrews 6 has been so moving to me lately that I feel like it's made a different imprint on my soul than in other years. Uh, You may have somewhere you have to be. There could be something that you feel like is really important. I'm going to leave that between you and the Lord. I'm going to tell you that I would sit for the next 30 hours without moving to hear these next 10 minutes. And I would because after 23 years, this is burned into me in a way that I don't know how to describe how much I hate sin now. I've hated it for a long time. I've been at war with the enemy for a long time. Talking to people that are the victims of adultery talking to people whose lives are ruined because of the selfishness of their spouse has just burned this right into my conscience. Hebrews 6.1 Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to Those acts lead to death. If you died when you sinned, it would be over, but you don't. The grace is that you live another day and you have the ability to turn from wickedness. But if you believe that you can continue to sin and simply say you're sorry, feel bad about it, and you are covered under grace, then you have failed to understand the newer covenant that you think covers you. The very first and most fundamental elementary teaching is repentance from acts that lead to death. Let's pick up in verse 4. It is impossible. Say impossible. Impossible. For those who have once been enlightened. Say enlightened. Enlightened. Who have tasted of the heavenly gift. Say heavenly gift. Who have shared in the Holy Spirit. Can lost people share in the Holy Spirit? Would you describe lost people as having had the heavenly gift? Lost people as enlightened? We're talking about enlightened, receiving a heavenly gift, sharing in the Holy Spirit. Verse 5. Who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age if they fall away to be brought back to repentance because to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. How many times should Jesus be crucified for your repetitive sin? How many of you are so sure that if you do it again next week, you're forgiven that it encourages you to do it again, and you are trampling underfoot the Son of God. Oh, man, I'm glad pastors wound up about porn. I, I wish he'd been preaching about that. I'm also talking about your bad attitude. I'm also talking about the failure to let your husband lead your home. I'm also talking about the lack of desire to discipline your children and raise them in righteousness. I'm also talking about every other sin. You either drive out all, destroy all, demolish all and take possession or it becomes a barb in your eye, a thorn in your side, trouble in your land and God will do to you what you should have done to that. Listen to where he goes with this. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it. Doesn't that sound good? Land drinking in the rain? If you plant a seed and water falls from the heavens, what's supposed to happen? And produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives a blessing from God. What's the first word of verse 8? What's the first word of verse 8? But... Land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be... This is a theology of fire. When the Holy Ghost rains on your life, when the word uh, that is imperishable seed is deposited in you, and you are living in that, it ought to produce good Fruit. If instead your land is marked by thorns, you are in danger of being cursed and burned. Now, I'm going to tell you the truth. Billy Graham preached to thousands and thousands of people, and I'm not picking on him, but I never heard anything like this. Instead, we're pretty sure that if you closed your eyes, raised your hand, and walked out the door, you would have a blank check to sin, but you wouldn't want to use it. That's the kind of thing that I heard my whole life. But it is not what the Bible teaches at all. A crop, a land that receives rain from heaven, but does not produce good fruit and instead produces thorns is in danger of being cursed. You know, you intellectuals can figure it out. Does one thorn, two thorns, three thorns, how many thorns? I have no idea. That is definitely up to the Lord. But the point is, if you are living with the thorn bush as your master, Jotham's prophecy is still as true today as it ever was then. And Abimelech might be your king, not... Jesus Christ, you might be in the house of Bel bereath, the God of your false theology instead of the God of perfection. I think it's probably fitting that we revisit the thorn issue in a couple rapid scriptures mark four eighteen through nineteen still others like seed sown among "...still others, like seed sown among thorns, hear the word. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things, come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful." When the Word of God falls on soil that has thorns in it, if you do not drive out those thorns, destroy them, demolish them, and take possession of the soil of your heart, then those thorns remain a threat to the saved Christian and will choke out the Word of God in your life. Whether you've ever heard that or not, it is actually what it says. This is also why the book of James... In the first chapter, in the 21 verse, phrases something this way. It says, therefore, get rid of all moral filth. How much moral filth? Oh. And the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the Word of God planted in you which, which can save you. See, thorns are a threat because they will barb out your eye. They will be a hindrance in your side. They will cause trouble in your land when a Christian lives in a state that is planning to sin and saying that it is inevitable and said, no, no, I'm going to fight and I'm going to win. But you have not been given victory over it because you haven't sought God for it. You're lazy. You are in danger of being a ground that is cursed. He said the word of God which can save you. The problem is not with the seed. It's the same in every one of the four soils. The problem is with the man who is working the soil of his own heart. You cannot live in sin and in righteousness. How many of you know the famous passage in Isaiah 55, 11-13 about the Word of God coming down like rain from the heavens? It's supposed to produce good things. Put 55.11 up. Let's let's hear it. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Everybody loves that. Next verse. You will go out in joy and be led uh, forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, pine trees grow. In other words, you will produce something besides the thorn bush that rules over most of humanity. Do I still have your attention? You have exactly two more scriptures with me. If these two scriptures don't get your attention, if they don't make an impact on your life that you remember this day, then I, I really, I won't have anything else to offer you. But I can tell you that these have me praying longer, reading more, taking everything more seriously than I have ever. And I, how, how many of you don't think I'm a serious guy? Some of you have known me since I was 18 years old. Apathy has not been something that's been a part of my life. I don't sit on my hands, sit back just hope everything turns out all right. Uh, most of you started off a lot better than I did. Okay? I, I'm not even going to go into all of that. The, there, there are wicked people that love to listen to our messages. They're used of the devil that are trying to discourage the people here. It can't be done. The Holy Ghost is me, me and the Lord are a majority. The fact that so many brothers stand here, it's. Uh, I, I simply want to say, this is not a fault of your upbringing. It's not a fault of some emotional wound in you. When you were three, if a leaf blew in the window, landed on your foot, and the psychologist has convinced you that's why you are the way you are, this is all a lie. The truth is, you either love the thorn bush as your master, or you reject the thorn bush and everything about it, and you are fighting hand, tooth, and nail. You don't care what it costs you you will be holy or you will die trying because you know for sure you're dead already in sin. That's that's either your heart or it's not. And if it is your heart, then I'm telling you it must show up in your actions or you have deceived yourself about your own heart. Revelation 19 gives me a scripture from the New Testament book of prophecy. We have now gone from the front of the Bible to the back of the Bible. We have touched every major section. It's this last statement that kills me. He will do to you what he told you to do to them. We're told that God is the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. He is uh, like that idiot on 59... that is a clown and not a Christian, that is not sure that the Hindus in India are wrong, this passage of Scripture will wake you up. Have to consider the absolute literal truth of what this says. I saw heaven, this is 1911, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and when Jesus Christ says it, is it true? Yes. If in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, then the word in the Older Testament, is it as true as what Jesus Christ says? With justice, he judges and makes war. Jesus Christ is returning to judge and to make war. You've heard he's returning to save. He's returning to save. He's returning to save. There's an element of salvation in his return. But the plain language here says judge and... What were we supposed to do with sin? drive out all does that sound like war destroy all demolish all take possession does that sound like war if you do not do to sin what he told you to do he will come and do it to you his eyes are like blazing fire And on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows, but he himself, he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. Not the New Testament. Not the Passion of the Christ. Not the neat little theological Jesus that hangs out on your fishing lure cross. His name is the Word of God. Every word of God that has ever been spoken... The Word of God in Numbers 33, the Word of God in the book of Jeremiah, the Word of God in the Proverbs. His name is the Word of God and He is coming to make good on every promise of the Word of God, including the one that says, If you do not drive sin out, He will drive you out. Amen. The armies of heaven were following Him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean, Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. It's funny how people think that's every nation except theirs. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The olive tree, the fig tree, the vine... The king of kings is coming and he is going to drive the thorn bush right out of the land. He will not settle for Baal, bereth or those who hang out in it. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come gather together for the great supper of God that you may eat the flesh of kings. If you will not take the attitude towards sin that practically speaking drives it out, destroys it, demolishes it, and takes full possession of your rights as the Son of God, then He will return and do to you exactly what you were supposed to do to sin and did not love Him or value Him enough to do it. You will be the sluggard trapped in the thorns the man who is spiritually poor because he folded his hands and crossed his arms during the working season. I'm going to tell you why this motivates me so much. This is our very last scripture. This is Matthew 27. Pick up in 27. There is a reason this is under my skin, and it's not because of one or two incidents. It's because the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to stand against the gates of hell. It's because the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work, not participate in it. The reason this is under my skin is because it is a mortal threat to you and to me both, and the church at large is not taking it seriously because it is led by men like Abimelech rather than men like Jotham. So we stand on Mount Gerizim and we are shouting with all of our heart the truth of the Word of God. Matthew 27 says, Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium. I've stood in that praetorium. It's a place where once a year they mocked prisoners. They had games scratched into the Roman ground right there. And what they're about to do to him, they did as entertainment for themselves. To be a Jew was a fun thing. Into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him. They stripped Jesus Christ to naked. Humiliation, shame, degradation. He never did anything that deserved that, but you've done many things that deserve that. We all like to point to the woman who was caught in adultery and how Jesus said, go forth and sin no more, and He didn't condemn her. And we go, oh, He didn't condemn her. She was stripped naked for her sin. Under the threat of very present, real, physical death right there. And He saved her from it because He would be stripped. They put a scarlet robe on Him and twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. What did they twist together? They took the product of your sin. They took the product of the ruling of the thorn bush, and they put it on the only human being that has ever lived that didn't deserve it. You'll know I love Titus. You know I love Judah and Gabriel and Abby. Love Matthew. Love Jennifer you know how much more I love Jesus Christ? Do you really think that I would stand by while you stripped my wife, shoved thorns into her head because of your actions? Do you think I would let that happen? Would any of you men let that happen to your daughters? Do you recognize what was done for you? How dare we take sin lightly? Do you recognize what was pressed into Him? And He oh well, we're not perfect, we're just forgiven. Oh, be glad that Elijah doesn't stand here. I'm mad because I wouldn't stand by and watch somebody beat one of you to death. You want to know why he took that crown of thorns? Because you deserved it. You want to know what it is that crucified him? What it is that beat him, mocked him? Your sin did. It was God's will to crush him for your iniquity. We sit in services like this and you already got your... But I'm okay. Uh, You make sure that you have not wrapped a false theology around yourself. If you are continuing to sin, you should be afraid. And then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. This is the fullest manifestation of the thorn bush. If the thorn bush can't get you to join in sin, what does it want to do? Burn you. The smear campaign has begun. Is your life mocking Jesus or glorifying Him? To stand and say, oh, well, you know, we got to live in this flesh. Everybody sins. To act like that is to mock the one who bore your sin. You're treating it like an unholy thing, what he did. The justice of God will demand of you that if you received his blood, if you are the ground that is receiving the rain of heaven, that you produce good fruit. And if you casually let thorns grow up around, they will choke you out and he will do to you what you were supposed to do to them, i.e., weed you out of the kingdom. Man, I don't know what to think about all this hellfire and brimstone. You better think about it now. If you don't think about it now, when you are thinking about it, will be because you're standing before the one that you mocked. What's an honest assessment? Are we adding to the thorns in his crown with our daily actions? Are you sure you have the right to be right? Are you sure that to cop an attitude is the right reaction for somebody that he did this for? I am astounded at the level of iniquity that I see among people who say they love the Lord. I am astounded at it. And I'm not talking about somewhere else. I cannot believe the flippant way in which people treat the most precious thing that there has ever been. We show more reverence for our new cars. This is a time to return to the fear of the Lord. His spirit will testify with you that you're right with him. You won't have to have some bell berith. They ran into a house that is a false covenant. It said God. It said covenant. And they ran into it and it burned down around them. Most of popular Christianity is going to burn down around us. Jesus Christ said the love of most will grow cold. You better make sure you're not in that. If you haven't noticed, the pastors will stand with you in any circumstance that you stand with Jesus. We will not stand with you even one inch while you walk away from him. Please stand to your feet.